When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Into the Woods edition. It's Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. On today's show, the movie Spencer has made Kristen Stewart into the frontrunner for Best Actress. Her portrayal of Diana, Princess of Wales, is at the center of this beautiful hallucinatory retelling. The movie also stars Sally Hawkins and Timothy Spall. It's in theaters now, and you can watch it streaming. And then on Showtime, we have Yellow Jackets. It's a TV show about a girls' high school soccer team whose plane crashes, stranding them in the wilderness where they're forced into cannibalism. The show toggles back and forth between their 19-month ordeal in the forest and their present-day middle-aged selves. It stars Juliette Lewis and Christina Ricci and Melanie Linsky. And finally... A giant, a true giant, not a cliche giant, but a real giant of musical theater and one of the great artists of the 20th century has died. We discussed the unrivaled legacy of Stephen Sondheim with Slate's own Isaac Butler. But joining me first is June Thomas, who's Poobah. What are you now? You're t- I'm the senior managing Poobah of all Poobah entities. <laughs> I'm actually the senior managing producer of Slate Podcast and one of the hosts of Working, along with Isaac Butler and Karen Han. Magnificent. June, welcome back to the show. How great to have you as a full-on three-segment plus plus (laughs) co-host. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Dana, how are we doing on Amazon these days, by the way? You know what? I forgot to obsessively check over the holiday weekend. I was having so much fun that I forgot to narcissistically monitor my book sales. (laughs) (laughs) But I did have one book-related anecdote to share since this is now the segment of the show where we talk about my book, which is that in reading the audiobook aloud, which I've been doing over the past couple weeks going in and out to a sound studio, I am learning a lot about audiobooks and thinking a lot about audiobooks. And I'm going to talk about that in my endorsement segment this week. I feel like I've come to a new understanding of what it is that makes a great audiobook reader in hoping you know, that I can become one myself of my own book. Dana, as your publicist, please state clearly the title of your forthcoming <laughs> book. My book is called Cameraman. I will not say the long subtitle here, but it's a book about Buster Keaton and about the years that he lived, which was 1895 to 1966, sort of a cultural history of his lifespan. And it's out on one twenty five twenty two, but it is available for pre-order now as audiobook, ebook, or regular book book. All right. Shall we make a show? Let us do it. At the opening of Spencer, the feature film from director Pablo Lorraine, Dana, who's known for? I mean, probably among American viewers, he's best known for Jackie, the Natalie Portman biopic about Jackie Kennedy. I like him best for his Chilean movies. There's one called No. The title is just the word No, N-O, with uh, Gael Garcia Bernal that's wonderful. And he has also a movie about Pablo Neruda called Neruda that's fantastic. Uh, Marvelous. Okay, well, the beginning of this biopic, uh, Diana, biopic is such a terrible word for a movie. I mean, they're they're done with so much more elan and subtlety than they ever were. We can probably retire the word. This movie, at the beginning of this movie, Diana is 10 years into her tenure as the wife of Charles, heir to the throne. 
and uh, and well into her own mass media apotheosis as the people's princess. For all the surrounding hoo-ha and grandeur of her life, though, her own voice cannot rise above a whisper, and her shoulders can scarcely ever unbunch. She's as depicted here, a kind of trapped bird beating against the rafters, and she's wasting away while doing it. She suffers from a terrible eating disorder and is left to watch as her own soul gets fed bit by bit to the paparazzi. In here, it's ice-cold loneliness. Out there is a ravening press. And so she beats against the rafters without necessarily wanting to actually escape. I know it's a poetic description, but it's a very poetic movie about the hallucinatory unreality of being a royal in the late 20th century, to which Diana, in a desperate bid to reclaim herself, any basic, authentic part of herself, responds by becoming only more hallucinatory and unreal. Into this set of events, someone has ominously left a copy of The Life and Death of Anne Boleyn on her pillow. Is this a warning or a prophecy? She takes it, however, as an opportunity and begins to speak to the ghost of Boleyn, another royal wife who is found inconvenient and disposed of by the powers that be. Even as her mind may be coming undone, she tries to be a good mother and an ordinary friend to her dresser played with the usual understated wit and feeling by Sally Hawkins, but she cannot make her public and her inner selves jibe. As I said up top, uh, Kristen Stewart plays the princess and she's a favorite, I think at this point, for best actress. In the clip we're about to hear, Charles and Diana are separated by a a magnificently huge red felt snooker table. It's a brilliantly shot scene in which the two argue in their own suppressed way over the appropriate response to the press. It seems they're circling just me. Not you. Just me. Perhaps it's because I always take care to close my curtains. The thing is, Diana, there has to be two of you. You know, there's, there's two of me, there's two of father, two of everyone. There's the real one and the one they take pictures of. Now, we are given tasks. Now, I, I hated to shoot first. I gave my gun to the other one, but... Um, but you, you know, you have to be able to make your body do things you hate. That you hate. That you hate. That you hate. Yes. For the good of the country. For the country? Yes, the people. Because they don't want us to be people. Dana, that um, is unusual uh, uh, snippet of the movie because for one thing, we simply have Charles and Diana actually addressing one another and talking to one another. Mostly they're at a chilly remove in total silence, occasionally exchanging glances, pretty hostile glances across the room. Um, But in in another sense, maybe it's somewhat representative uh, she speaks very little, and when she speaks, she speaks in this whispery, uh, throaty, you know, half withheld voice, um, and conveys the impression of being enormous amounts of rage want to come out, and enormous amounts of pressure are coming at her from all sides, suppressing her. What do you make of this? 
Yeah, that, that is a very atypical clip, but we had to play it in order to get some kind of audio, because if you really wanted to hear the typical audio of the movie Diana, she's usually on screen alone. It's an extreme close-up of Kristen Stewart's face, and there's this eerie, sort of jazzy score by Johnny Greenwood playing in the background. This is not a movie about royals interacting with other royals about what it means to be royals, which is what that scene is about. All of that is essentially understood and is subtext in most of the movie. And I think I say this in my review, but every character who isn't Diana is very ghostly and insubstantial in this movie, right? I mean, the whole idea is that we're, we're getting the perspective of this very damaged woman at a horrible moment in her life. And so everybody in the outside world is seen through this sort of veil of depression and, and distance. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's an atypical scene. I have to say, it's now been a few weeks, maybe even a month or so, since I saw this movie and wrote about it. And the movie itself has not worn that well on me. I think that I'm now somewhat in the camp of those who would say great performance, truly stellar performance um, that would even bring non-Christian Stewart fans over to her side. I have always been a fan of hers, uh, but not in a great movie. I'm very curious to hear what June and you have to say about it. But I feel like this movie commits so hard to that, you know, psychological perspective and that making the world around her insubstantial, that while that effect is achieved effectively, um, I'm not sure what purpose it serves and how it serves the story. And especially if you went in not knowing a lot of Diana lore. I mean, I suppose we all know a certain amount just from having been exposed to the media over the last 30 plus years. But if you went in not having, you know, watched The Crown and, you know, or, or, or followed really closely the tabloid histories of Diana and you weren't a royals person, I am not sure that so, that some of these points would, would get across. Um I don't know. I mean, I, and I even agree with those. I rarely use this word, but I even kind of agree with those critics who dismiss the movie as pretentious in a way. I think that some it tries to take on sort of horror tropes at times, mm-hmm. which we can talk about in a way that doesn't quite work. I think that Anne Boleyn coming to visit her sort of theme throughout the movie, how she sees the ghost of Anne Boleyn visiting her is kind of dumb and unconvincing. And yet it's so great to see Kristen Stewart take on a role like this, do, doing things she doesn't usually do, play an accent, play period, play in costume. Costume, you know, really inhabit someone who's very, very different from what we know of Kristen Stewart, right? Um, and and just do it incredibly well. So I'm happy to see her in the awards conversation, even if the movie as a whole did not completely sway me. Mm. June, you and I, I believe, are both ardent Republicans, Indeed. by which I guess by which I don't mean you know <laughs> the party of Trump or even Ronald Reagan or Eisenhower. I, what, we, what I mean is, I think you and I agree there shouldn't be kings. Um, and there, therefore, therefore shouldn't be princesses and people shouldn't want to be princesses. We're living, you especially as a Brit, with this crazy anachronism and, uh, and, the, and the mass fascination with it. What do you make of this latest of the many iterations of uh, Diana's uh, tragic fable? Well, I don't want to sound naive or silly because clearly this is about Diana this is about the royal family. But I think it's a much better film if you kind of forget about the royal mm. family. Mm-hmm. I think if you just kind of take it as, okay, these are some characters. They're not going to be fully fleshed out. Uh, I, but if you kind of leave it, I, I love your your phrase, um, uh, Dana, uh, just treat it as the trippy tone poem that it is and just kind of let it wash over you. I think it's a much stronger experience or one that's much more relatable because essentially it's a story of estrangement. It's a story of having to spend time with people 
who you really don't want to spend time with, but you're obliged to. You maybe are obliged to because you're a princess and the queen is asking you to do something, but you might also be obliged to do so because you have children with this person and it's a holiday and so you have to spend time with their family. Or maybe, you know, you're not even estranged, but you just don't like certain people. But again, because of the protocols, which may not be about royalty, but just about family and and the way and politeness, you have to spend precious time with them. And in that sense, uh, I think it's very powerful. Anyone who's ever avoided going downstairs to dinner with their in-laws can, yes. can sympathize with Diana in this <laughs> yes. movie. Yes, yes. So let me say first what I quite admired about it. The look and feel of it are extraordinary. I mean, yes, it's. Uh, you, I understand why people might call it pretentious, but it, it, mostly it's a... You know, it's a really idiosyncratically realized uh, tone, cinematic tone poem um, of a of a young woman essentially being crushed by uh, 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 you know this grotesque family and the public expectations that attend joining it. Um, a thing I really loved about it is the upstairs downstairs aspect of it, which is the one thing that is handled with a degree of precision, sort of historical precision it seems like um or or feels at least as though it 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 were um and it just returns to mind how much an otherwise maybe not entirely successful movie can be rescued by a single understated but absolutely perfect performance i'm thinking now about sean harris who plays i guess what would you call him the sort of head Head of the kitchen or something? Yeah, yeah. sort of, exactly. And kind of head of the downstairs, mm. at least in the sort of universe as we're in it. Um, my by far favorite scene in the movie is when he says, down here, we laugh at all of you, except you. We don't laugh at you. And I, I think we're meant to assume he's telling her the truth, but even if he isn't, it's an extraordinarily uh, salvific thing for her to hear in that moment. Um, and, um, and then he goes on to say, we're rooting for you to save yourself effectively and be the person and remain the person you were when you arrived here 10 years ago. All of a sudden, this occasionally somewhat empty tone poem has a beating living heart. There's just not enough of that in the movie. Dana, I'd say another example of that is I do think the scenes with the two boys are extraordinary. I, I, I think the movie goes a long way to showing us a real human being in those scenes and those boys are extraordinary. You believe that those are real boys and that's their real mother. Uh, Great performances. Stephen, I agree with you about the really beautiful uh, portrait of, of parenting. Uh, You know, she clearly, you know, this, the, the character that is presented in this movie was a great parent um, surrounded by people who did not get great parenting. That's very Mm -hmm. clear. Yeah. I have to take some issue with you about the relationship with the servants, though. That, to me, seemed a little bit muddled. Mm. Um, You know, yes, I think you're right that that there's this sense. And and I thought that Sean Harris was great. And yes, Sally Hawkins is great. But there's this... I didn't really enjoy what that said. You know, I mean, so... You know, as as you as we've all said, there is an element in this movie where this Diana is not a saint. She too is bratty. She too, um, you know, messes about with people when she doesn't really need to. She isn't perfect, but she, as much as she relies on these servants, and as much as she, you know, she allows them to do their job, you know, she also takes advantage of them. Oh, and absolutely. She, you know, she demands Maggie 
her dresser, come back from London. She demands all of these things. And they, you know, they're, she's getting a holiday that she doesn't want. They're, she's getting to be with this hideous family. They might want to be with their family. They don't get to. Um, you know, the, I, I absolutely agree that there's this sense that, as she put it, um, she's rather middle class. She likes, uh, you know, Phantom of the Opera and fast mm-hmm. food. And it's the opposite of their taste. And maybe that's the taste of downstairs. But she isn't them and she's still exploiting them and i think yes. that 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 was too they, they made that a little too easy or they or they kind of shaded the they they hid the conflict a little too much all right well i think the one thing we all agree on yes is that her performance uh stewart's performance is is diana is extraordinary and she deserves whatever is coming her way Oh, absolutely. When I wrote on this movie, it wound up turning into more of a meditation on Kristen Stewart and her career and just how extraordinary, how much extraordinary work she's done at the age of of 31 than about the movie itself. And I hadn't really realized until I started looking back into her career how long she's been acting and how many different kinds of roles she's played already. So, yeah, it does not feel at all too early for it to be an Oscar conversation about Kristen Stewart. And I would be happy to see that happen. Excellent. All right. Well, the movie is Spencer. As I say, you can find it streaming in a variety of places for some coin. You got to pony up or you can go to a movie theater. They'll also make you pay, by the way. All right. Moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, before we go any further, this is typically in the show where we discuss business. Dana, what do we uh, what do we have this week? Steve, we have double biz this week. The first item is to remind everyone that our upcoming listener call-in episode will be on Wednesday, December 29th. This is our end-of-year tradition um, where we ask listeners to ask us questions and do a whole episode of just answering those questions. So if there's something you've always wanted to ask us about the show, about culture more broadly, about anything you like, you can leave us a message at 402-989-3378. Again, that's 402-989-3378. It's a voicemail box we have set up so you can just just call in and ramble about whatever you'd like us to talk about. And as always, you can also email us with your question at culturefest at slate.com. And on December 29th, we will pick a pile of those questions and take them on with Julia Turner, who by then will be back on the show. Second item of business is just to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment, which is also from a listener. It's a question from a listener named Erica, who wrote us with the question that could cause some anxiety in the answering, what's it like to write a book? How did you get the idea? When did you take it seriously? How do you pitch it? And what's the emotional process? Did you always think you'd write a book? Those were Erica's questions. We will answer those and no doubt others that come up in the conversation. And it's a particularly apropos moment to do that because, as you know, if you've been listening to my freelance publicist, Steve Metcalf, over the last few weeks, I just finished a book that's coming out on January 25th. June is just starting a book, which I'm really excited to hear about. She just signed a book contract a few months ago, I think. And Steve is in the painful process of agonizing in the middle of writing a book. I really feel for him because that is by far the hardest part. So we will talk about those three phases in our Slate Plus segment today. 
And if you are not a member of Slate Plus, here is my pitch. You can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. It costs a dollar for your first month. And for that dollar, you get many, many things. Ad-free podcasts, so you never have to listen to me try to sell anything again. Lots of bonus content like the Slate Plus segment that I just mentioned and the same kinds of segments on other Slate shows like Slow Burn and the Political Gab Fest. And best of all, to me, unlimited access to all the great writing on slate.com. So you'll never hit a paywall if you belong to Slate Plus. These memberships make a big difference for us and for the magazine. They help support our journalism and keep our work alive. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus to be a Slate Plus member. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, on to the show. Okay, June. Well, I'm I'm laughing already because I sense you and I are both getting our 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 gloves on, stepping into the ring here. Well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I've got that thing where I'm, I'm holding the string in my teeth and it's going to be hard for me to, to talk while I just pull them tight. <laughs> I see us as like the weigh-in, you know, the stare-down, which actually <laughs> ding, breaks ding, ding. into a fight, which which it's off mic. We've already we've already fought two times, <laughs> two and a half times about yellow jackets. So let's, let's do this. Ding, ding, ding. Are we ready to rumble? Here mm-hmm. we go. Yellow Jackets is a series on Showtime, and it's quite the meat stew. It's Lord of the Flies meets <laughs> Lost meets Mean Girls meets meets meets. You know, I can just keep them coming, right? It's about a high school girls soccer team whose plane crashes en route to a tournament, leaving the players stranded deep in a Canadian wilderness. The survivors, that is, they infamously were forced into cannibalism. But that's not the only twist here. We shift back and forth in the show between, I think it's 1996, mid-90s when the crash happened, and to present day 2021, as the survivors cope or down, as the case may be, with their trauma, their guilt. One is trapped in a lifeless marriage, her intelligence having been all but squandered. Another is in and out of rehab. A third is an abusive nurse to the elderly. Meanwhile, a woman claiming to be a journalist has appeared asking to tell their story in a book. This reveals the depths of their unresolved wounds and leads to various reunions. Let's listen to a clip. Uh, you're going to hear two of the survivors played by Melanie Linsky and Tawny Cypress discussing the latest developments. A reporter approached me today. She said she was with the local paper, but I Googled her and she wasn't credited in any bylines anywhere. These people come out of the woodwork every few years on some anniversary or another. You know that. There's no reason to think this is any different. I can think of a few. We agreed. Say no more than we have to. Stay out of the public eye. Shauna. I saw you on fucking television, Ty. If someone's digging, we are all fucked. Take care of it. Have you talked to Nat? She's in rehab again. And there's still no sign of the others? No, not for months. Okay. Then we're fine. So long as nobody does anything crazy, we have nothing to worry about. All right. Well, June, as with um, as with Spencer, this is a somewhat unrepresentative clip because that makes it sound like it's a good show. Hey, now. Hey, now. <laughs> Start with the cheap shot. Get them off balance. <laughs> uh, 
June, you like the show. I, I am did. all yours. I did. I did not expect to be quite as won over as I was. Um, there are many elements of this show that typically aren't things that I enjoy. Uh, you know, no thing that has been written about Je- Yellow Jackets has fewer than five mentions of Lost. Uh, mm-hmm. That. Yeah. Plane crash and mystery unraveling and getting lost in the mystery show uh, is is something that's always, always uh, mentioned as a point of comparison. I don't have any interest in shows like that. Uh, there are definitely horror elements in what happens out in the the woods or whatever uh, remote area of Canada, the, the, the plane crash uh just to, to be clear, uh, the soccer team is off to nationals and the plane crashes uh, in, in a remote area and they're, they're stuck there for 19 months, as you said. The scenes that, that happen there could easily be classified as horror. Horror is a genre I avoid at all costs. So this is not a show I expected to like, but I absolutely fell for it. It won me over in that way that uh, I just love. It's hard to say because it just grabbed me. Like when I got on Sunday, I got a little notification on my phone say that there was a new episode available and it gave me like that rush. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so excited. Uh, I love the characters. Uh, I love the actresses. Um, There are some absolute superstars in here. Another thing that all the reviews mention is that three of the four stars especially had careers in which they too had uh, you know received a lot of attention early in their careers mm-hmm. they were mm-hmm. kids who had the press focused on them melanie linsky christina ricci and juliette lewis they all shared that experience uh, which is part of what happens to the the characters and they are magnificent all of them uh tony cypress too they're they're they're, they're there's some really fantastic acting going on here um you know, we heard in that clip the way that Melanie Linsky under, you know, she's she's mousy, but then she has this power. There's mm. real great acting here. And and the story, despite being kind of cliche when you when you sort of, you know, say it out loud, it just really grabbed me. I was absolutely captivated by it. Oh, June, stop. You're starting to convince me. Uh, uh, Dana, <laughs> don't curry favor with the boss here. Tell us what you really think. I you side with me. June is the man over there <laughs> yeah. in your corporate yeah, boardroom don't, don't glowering at us. So until episode three, there have only been three episodes of this that have aired. So that's all I've seen. And I was pretty much all in until in episode three, and there's where the lost comparisons come in, what seemed to be some elements of the supernatural and horror started sneaking in. I'm not sure if these things are going to turn out to be Scooby-Doo style fake supernatural that somebody is planting (laughs) clues or something. But if this show does go down the road of alternate universes and strange time loops and things like that, I will like it a lot less. I love the part set in the present day when the women are older, and it is essentially because of those three that you mentioned, June, Juliette Lewis, Christina Ricci, and Melanie Linsky, all fantastic. And I feel like the present day parts are better written a little bit too. There's something to me a bit perfunctory about the parts set in the past with the younger versions of the women that I feel like 
checks are being made in boxes, right? It's a Lord of the Flies story. And so we have to have this kind of brutality and that kind of competition. And I feel like those things are just being set up so that we can find things in the present day more interesting. But I would be willing to live with that. I mean, anytime you've got that, you know, that that time shift where you've got younger actors playing someone and older actors playing them, there's a little bit of forgiveness that you have to do, right? Unless it's Richard Linklater filming the same people 20 years later, <laughs> you have to accept that they're the same people and there's a continuity in the story, et cetera. So I can accept that. But if we start going down the lost road, I will give up on this show very soon. I feel like I'm somebody who saw from the beginning that Lost was going to founder in exactly the way it did. And I never had any interest in pursuing it after it started to get, you know, sort of eating its own tail. And uh, and I hope that this show doesn't go down that road because there's a lot about it that I like. Dana, I totally agree. The part, the part in the present tense is actually quite well written. It's way more specific. It makes far less of any kind of recourse to cliche or it's not a hash of other genres uh, necessarily. It's somewhat unfamiliar and it's obviously brought to wonderful life by these three actresses. I think, uh, but uh, um, I, what sank the show for me almost completely is the writing of the teenage selves, which, you know, it's, it's hard. It's, we, we've, we've, all grown up with The Breakfast Club, John Hughes, uh, uh, Amy Heckerling, Clueless, you know, uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I mean, these totems that are as real to us as our own adolescence in some sense. And and to write about American high school adolescence is to just enter a, a highly generic universe. It's very hard to make it authentic. But I just thought this was a fail. I didn't like the casting of the younger selves. I, it had nothing to do with suspension of disbelief between, you know, the, the, the younger actresses don't look enough like their middle-aged analogs. It really was, it had nothing to do with that and everything to do with the quality of the performances and the writing. I just find them, I find them shallow, trite, uh, young people as written by old people. Um, I, I, you know, I, it, that really just, it left me cold. And then, and then the other problem in some sense is that I, at the end of, you know, I got well into the third episode before really giving up because these elements do not cohere or complement one another all that well. The supernatural slash horror on the island, which just is so overdone. It's like, God, it's like, it, it feels written by people who still think the word edgy has semiotic <laughs> power to it. Uh, the um, high school elements just, you know, strike me as, as trite. I mean, um, and then this kind of wonderful post-traumatic drama happening in the present tense. I, I don't see how they balance. The more more is less in some instances, and I think that's what's going on here. Okay, Steve, this is where I mount my rousing defense. Oh, God. Uh, first of all, I agree with both of you that I have zero interest in these supernatural elements. Please, let's minimize those because I fear yeah. that will immediately squelch the, the passion that I've built up. Um, I want to defend the the young people. First of all, Steve, I couldn't disagree more about the the similarity of appearance. That to me is actually kind of spooky. That's the one supernatural element that I'm in favor of. Like Melanie Linsky's younger yeah. counterpart yeah. might as well be her. It looks it's like crazy. her CGI. June, I was just yeah. saying I didn't have a problem oh. with this. Ah, I got disbelief. it. I got it. Um, you know, and and you know, when I saw, I have to tell you too that when I saw Misty. I said, that's me. I was that kid. I was that, like, I, and I, I saw her. I recognized her. I was the, like, I want to be part of the group. I mean, of course, I was super was and I was super popular. But, you know, still, I recognize that element of, like, 
I just I'm I want to be with those other kids. I want to be in that other group. I'm you know, I don't look right. I can't really quite mesh with them, but I, I really want this. And I'm, you know, that sort of try hard, squeal for the team, you know, help the coach. I recognize that so much. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then the, the similarities to Christina Ricci is, is spooky. But the thing I, I want, the reason I really want to defend it is that these you know, this is a great challenge. It's a challenge of all initial episodes. But this one, because they have a little bit overcomplicated it, there's there's so many dimensions of complication. But one of them is that we have to show the kids as they start out, you know, they're jocks, they're, they're you know, team, team, rah, rah. Then they have this crash. Then they're going to undergo another transformation. But we have to establish them very quickly. So, yeah, it's a little cliche, perhaps. But I actually think that young people, especially, you know, the championship team, they are particularly subject to cliched speech. Um, that, that itself is a cliche. But, you know, I think that that's an age where you are particularly, you know, hitting notes that you think are the notes that the, the group that you want to, you know, fit in with would hit. You like music that, that the kids you want to fall in with like it's a time when we're kind of all of us a little bit squelch our true selves so the cliche of it actually felt like a feature to me rather than a bug it's just a way of establishing who they are at that first stage when they're 17 18 whatever they are and then they're going to transform again i didn't mind that at all um but yeah supernatural can go today immediately if not sooner all right. Well, the show is Yellow Jackets. It's on Showtime, which is, a, you know, you could do it as an ad on the Amazon, which is how I got it. But uh, check it out and, um, you know, resolve the resolve the um, debate here. All right. Let's move on. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right. Well, 
as people have been saying, and I think in this instance, it's a completely merited and absolute titan of American theater and American musical theater, especially has died. Stephen Sondheim was 91 years old. Um, Let me get quickly to Isaac Butler, who joins us to talk about Sondheim's legacy. Isaac is the author of the forthcoming The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, a book that I cannot wait to buy, read, and discuss with you, Isaac. But in the meantime, Stephen Sondheim, uh, how are you? Uh, hey, Stephen, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm doing all right. First of all, congratulations on an ex- exquisite piece, uh, Remembrance of Sondheim for Slate. Um, is thank it, you. Is it fair for listeners who may be familiar with Sondheim, but, but not overly familiar with his career arc, is it fair to divide it roughly into thirds that at first he was a lyricist for his seniors, and some say he was sort of ingratiating himself to the Broadway greats, and he wrote the lyrics for West Side Story very famously as a very young man and for Gypsy. Uh, arguably to the greatest musicals of all time. And then then was both composer and lyricist for a series of shows beginning with Funny Thing on the Way to the Forum. And then this remarkable middle period, part two of his career, in which he has a run in the 70s that people are really, really comparing to, I mean, Shakespeare practically, right? I mean, just sort of an unbelievable uh, hitting streak. He goes, company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Pacific Overtures, and then this remarkable Summa in 1979 with Sweeney Todd. And then a later period with masterpieces of its own, notably Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods. I mean, not to minimize those in any way, but is that is that sort of roughly the arc of, of Sondheim's career? Yeah. I mean, I think he would dispute some of that. You know, he didn't start out wanting to be just a lyricist, for example. You know, he always True, wanted yeah. to do both. Um, and he almost turned down doing West Side Story, but Oscar Hammerstein um, convinced him to do it. Uh, and he was originally slated to compose the music for Gypsy, but Ethel Merman didn't want to work with an untested composer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but no, you're absolutely right. There's sort of a early, it's not exactly a, an apprenticeship period if you look at the lyrics he wrote. You know what I mean? But there's an oh, early sure. period of working on 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 somewhat conventional musicals. There's a middle period of finding success uh, commercially most of the time, not all the time, but finding success uh, while pushing the art form forward as far as it can go. Then he has an enormous flop uh, with Merrily We Roll Along, the, the second biggest flop of his career. Um, and he then uh, switches up collaborators. He stops working with Hal Prince. He starts working with James Lapine. And he makes Sunday in the Park with George and Into the Woods um, uh, and Passion. And then he only completes really one other musical after that, which is a show called Bounce. And then it eventually gets retitled as Roadshow. And Passion and Roadshow are both considered kind of um, uh, considered by a lot of people to be failures. I mean, Passion has its champions. Roadshow doesn't really but but um you know they're both the the tail end of his career is 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 not actually one of of incredible success he does not go out on a high note um i would add a fourth stage into that career which is the essentially emeritus part of his career which has been most of the 21st century he's been working on new shows um he was working on one right up until his death based on two Bunuel films. Um, And uh, that is actually the period when his reputation increases the most. 
is actually the period when he's not making new work, when he's presiding over the work, when he's mentoring the next generation of composers, two generations really of composers, when all the kids who grew up watching Into the Woods have become enormous Sondheim fans as an adult, and, and when he is really the steward of his own reputation and record. The, both uh, There's a biography of him that he participates in, uh, and then he writes these two uh, books of lyrics um, that are sort of annotated with very funny memories, incredible craft essays, brilliant perceptions on the art of the theater. Um, those are called Finishing the Hat and Look, I Made a Hat, um, named after the the song from uh, Sunday, the extraordinary song, Finishing the Hat from Sunday in the Park with George, which is a song about the creative process itself. Um, and and all of that is is actually kind of what turns him reputationally into the Shakespeare of musical theater. Well, he you know? ha- I, well, what was interesting to me about, and I had forgotten this, even though I lived through it in real time, is is how much he was thought of as almost too much of a virtuosic wunderkind. Yes. That he was a puzzle obsessed, cold, somewhat feelingless you know, uh, uh, in love with modern modernist musical complexity yep. and wordplay, uh, almost too much like Tom Stoppard of the musical theater, which some would argue just couldn't possibly work, but he's completely overcome that. He has completely overcome that. There's a wonderful remembrance from a few years ago. I think it's from 2013 that Frank Rich wrote for New York Magazine that was re, uh, re resurfaced online. You know, New York Magazine put it up again after Sondheim's death. And it goes into this at great length that, you know, Frank Rich was one of Sondheim's critical champions, although he also negatively reviewed some of his shows. But he didn't have that many critical champions, actually. Variety savaged his work again and again. His work was often discussed in a way that was openly homophobic. Um, you know, the at the Tony Awards when Sunday in the Park with George lost to La Caja Fall, if you go and see look up that acceptance speech, it's this incredibly spiteful thing about, well, at least in some corners of America, you know, catchy songs with hummable tunes can still be appreciated or something like that. This award forever shatters a myth about the musical theater. There's been a rumor around for a couple of years that the simple, hummable show tune was no longer welcome on Broadway. Well, it's alive and well at the palace. A lot of people thought he was ruining the American musical by moving it so far away from pop music. To me, Sondheim is actually responding to a cultural change, which is that pop music is becoming something very, very different. And it can't hold the thematic character and plot weight and advance it in language in the same way that it used to be able to. You know, Sondheim's early career as a lyricist is the height of the novelty song in pop music. Pop music, when Sondheim is beginning his career, is how much is that doggy in the window and, you know, the itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini. Like, of course he didn't use that form, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, and it's actually not until recently, really, that there's a concerted successful effort to to reconcile pop music and the American musical in shows like Hamilton. Isaac, as you were as you were talking about that, about, you know, the, this this long period of, of his life in which Sondheim's music was not well received by most theater critics, I was thinking of the song from his musical Merrily, We Roll Along, that thematizes that, right? The yes. song um, from Opening Doors, I think is the song, right? Yep. Where there's a, there's a character who's sort of a producer, I guess he's supposed to be a Broadway producer, who is rejecting the unusual songwriting and lyrics of the three main characters based on Sondheim and his friends. 
It isn't every day I hear a score this strong But fellas, if I may, there's only one thing wrong There's not a tune you can hum There's not a tune you go bum 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 da dum You need a tune to go bum 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 da dum Give me a melody Why can't you throw them a crumb? What's wrong with letting them tap their toes a bit? I'll let you know when Stravinsky has a hit Give me some melody Yeah, and this is one of the few songs that he would admit was autobiographical at all. He wouldn't accept biographical readings of his work at all. He thought he would always argue they came from character. Uh, I think he sort of doth protest too much. (laughs) But this is one of the songs that he would drop that pretense and say, no, no, this is based on, you know, me and Hal Prince trying to sell our shows. Isaac, I would like to ask you a question uh, that is too basic for Steve or Dana to bring up. But since you're an expert on... Shakespeare as well oh, as yeah. Sondheim. One of the things that that was, I think everybody agrees quite rightly mentioned in almost everything that was written in the wake of his death was this comparison to Shakespeare. Um, one of the things about Shakespeare is he's com- difficult. I, I've always thought that maybe if Shakespeare were less difficult, he, his work wouldn't be uh, so widely interrogated. So... Question. Is Stephen Sondheim like William Shakespeare? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I compare I compare him to Shakespeare a bunch of different ways in my obituary. One of them is that he inherited a pre-existing scene and a pre-existing form. Shakespeare did not invent the five act structure. He didn't invent iambic pentameter. He didn't invent any of the genres he worked in the theater scene. Uh, that he was part of already existed. He was part of the second generation. So he's taking the pioneering ideas of the writers before him and then pushing them further and further. And in fact, we think that Shakespeare's early career, he was probably rewriting uh, that previous generation's plays to refresh their jokes because they were in repertory and stuff like that and make sure their references were up to date. So he's very literally doing that. Um, Sondheim, it's a similar thing. He did not invent the the book musical. His mentor, Oscar Hammerstein, did. He did not, or, I mean, with other people, but his, you know, he did not invent musical theater. He was not, he did not invent the theatrical space that his shows was take, were taking place in. He was taking all of those ideas and pushing them as far as they could go. And he he would say that as a lyricist anyway, he was doing that with a whole cohort of people, that there, that, that whole generation was pushing it, the musical theater uh, form to be more invested in character and theme than previously. Um, another way that he is like Shakespeare is that even in his minor work, and there is minor work, there are bad songs. I mean, there's bad shows. Everyone has those. There's still um, constantly another lyric, another thing that's brilliant that you're going to find. Mm. Um but there are also surface level pleasures. You are correct that Shakespeare is difficult, but Shakespeare was also an entertainer and the that entertainment is still there. Even Sondheim at his most difficult, there's entertaining stuff. There's dumb jokes or there's very smart jokes. Um, there's little lyrical things that give their own pleasure. You know, even if the whole thing might resist your comprehension at first, there's at least enough on the surface that's fun to keep you going. Yeah, well, to wit, right? So I wasn't some big, you know, musical theater beau back in the 1970s. And then in 79, I went to go see Sweeney Todd on Broadway. Uh, I saw it with Len Cariou and Angela Lansbury in its, you know, initial uh, incarnation and was just 
riveted. I was completely nailed to my seat, could scarcely stand up when it was over, went back and saw it two more times. Um, And it was one of the most just powerful. You couldn't believe what you were seeing. And that one is famous for its operatic difficulties as a work of musical theater to perform. It's And even stage in some ways is quite, it's difficult. It's thorny and difficult musically in some sense, but also incredibly funny. It's Ta- so funny. Can we, can we maybe play a clip from Priest? Let's do so, it. you know, like, I think that's, 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 I think the best, one of the best examples. So this is a song where, uh, Sweeney Todd, a barber who's about to go on a homicidal rampage and, uh, uh, his girlfriend, Mrs. Lovett, who's a baker, um, who, who is about to bake the victims of his crimes into meat pies. They're starting to envision this idea. And so they do this little play acting, the two of them of imagining a customer coming into her pie shop and ordering the people that Sweeney Todd has killed as uh, meat pies. What is that? It's priest. Have a little priest. Is it really good? Sir, it's too good, at least. Then again, they don't commit sins of the flesh. So it's pretty fresh. Awful lot of fat. Only where it's at. Haven't you got poet or something like that? Now you see the trouble with poet is how do you know it's deceased? Try the priest. Mmm, heavenly. Isaac, I'm glad that we listened to a little bit of Mrs. Lovett because I wanted to say from my own personal side, and this was something that I realized over the weekend in an incredibly moving way, is that Sondheim is, is maybe the first great artist that I've learned more about from my child than than I taught her. You know, so mm-hmm. essentially it's the first big aesthetic influence that my daughter has had on me. And, uh, and Mrs. Lovett is one of her dream roles. So my daughter, as I've talked about on the show before, is a theater student. She goes to LaGuardia. She studies drama. She wants to be an actor. And, uh, and the three dream roles that she's always wanted to play, I'm realizing that two of them come from Sondheim shows. She wants to play Mrs. Lovett, so she needs to wait to get to middle age for that one. She wants to play Sally Bowles from Cabaret, and she wants to play Mama Rose from Gypsy. This is like a 15-year-old who aspires to be, you know, a ladies who lunch kind of kind of singer. And uh, my relationship to Sondheim as a child was that he seemed like something for adults, right? My parents loved him. My parents, mm. when they took trips to New York, would go see, I think they saw Into the Woods in the original production with Bernadette Peters. And, you know, they saw whatever was on, on Broadway at the time, side by side by Sondheim, that review. Uh, but it sort of seemed like like grown-up music and it wasn't really something that I was that into or knew that much about. Then in 2014, when I reviewed Into the Woods, the not very good movie adaptation of Into the Woods, my initial review of the movie was a negative review of the movie, but I didn't understand what the movie was trying to do because it had not communicated Sondheim's intentions effectively. And Dan Coyce at Slate, who was editing that piece, sent me to the the Bernadette Peters musical. He said, you have to go see this version of the musical to understand what it's trying to do. And he was right. Once I had seen that, which is an extraordinarily well-filmed stage musical, it's not just sort of a a camera sitting at a proscenium arch, but it really moves a little bit like a movie. Once I had seen that, I understood why the new film adaptation didn't work. And it was a great piece of editorial advice to send me to watch that. But subsequently to that, my daughter started to discover Sondheim, in part because of that not very good Into the Woods adaptation. 
and started to go down rabbit holes. And now she knows all kinds of deep cuts. Her go-to audition song is Worst Pies in London from Sweeney Todd. Um, recent, I mean, recent performances that we have watched at my house of my daughter learning Sondheim songs include Getting Married Today, that really difficult patter song from Company, uh, Losing My Mind from Follies. You, you haven't heard that song for real until you've heard a 15-year-old <laughs> sing it, <laughs> right? Because it's the song of this embittered middle-aged woman. Um, anyway, I wanted to mention all of that just because that's how much of a, of a living artist he is, right? Is that the, the teenager in my house has been a huge fan since she was probably 10 years old or something like that. And he's a big part of her performance repertoire. So, I mean, that just gave me such a sense of what a great thing to have handed down to the world when you're 91, right? Is that there's um, a teenager who's teaching her mother, her parents <laughs> uh, about these incredible songs. Yeah. And, you know, the, again, there's another layer to that because if you go and look at uh, Finishing the Hat and you look up um, not getting married today, right? You will get a sort of like brilliant, so brilliant. I started laughing while reading it, right? Because it's incredibly in depth guide to how to write a patter song. Because mm-hmm. he's like, you know, you think writing a patter song or like delivering a patter song is hard, but it's not hard so long as you use these sounds and this arrangement. And he just keeps going so deep into it. It's like this exuberant craft essay about how to write a patter song, you know? So there's always these like, there's always like, I think part of why people get so obsessed with him is that 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 rabbit hole just keeps getting deeper and deeper. There's always another layer, Uh, whether it's that the musicals have been rewritten in different versions with different books, or it's his own explanations of it, or his own interviews about the process of making it, or, you know, the very, you know, the different actors and the spins they've put on it. It's like a really infinite subject matter to dig into, which Mm. I think is another thing that is Shakespearean about the body of work is that there's always going to be some more layer to Mm go. Right. So Isaac, um, you know, Sondheim was sort of famously reluctant to choose his favorite song. It's kind of an inane question to ask a composer or any artist really um, maybe hinted at one in particular or whatever. But I'd like you maybe to choose one to go out on, maybe that exhibits the depth of feeling that Sondheim deserves to be known for, but wasn't always. One of them that he said was his favorite, sometimes he would sometimes say it was his favorite, um, that's certainly one of mine and that I wrote about in the uh, obituary is Someone in a Tree from mm-hmm. Pacific Overtures. So this is a number where Commodore Perry has arrived to forcibly open Japan to trade. And this you know world historical event that changes the destinies of multiple nations is not narrated by the people at the forefront of the event, but by the everyday people who witness it and are trying to understand it and see their culture changing before their eyes. Um, this particular song, Someone in a Tree, is narrated by three different people. Um, there is a 10-year-old boy in a tree who can see the conference between Commodore Perry and the Shogun, but uh, cannot hear it. There is a warrior who can hear the um, conference but can't see it. And then the the boy, uh, as an old man, is trying to remember the event. And so it's really about like what is history and how does history get made. But So maybe this is a curious thing to say for a deeply felt song, but I think if you listen to it, you can really hear an emotional complexity that is almost difficult to describe as he triangulates between Mm. these different viewpoints. So I'm going to say someone in a tree from maybe the criminally underappreciated Pacific Overtures. It's the fragment of the day. It's the peril, not the 
All right. Well, Isaac Butler is the author of the forthcoming The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Thanks for coming back on the show. This was really fun. It's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Stephen. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, I teased my endorsement at the top of the show when I said that I had been thinking about audiobook recordings because I've been recording my book. So the experience of recording my book has been really pleasurable, really challenging. Uh, The most time I've ever spent behind a mic in a studio, even after 13 years of podcasting. And um, and part of how I prepped for it is that I asked the production team, who was really great, by the way. I mean, they they read the book. They looked up the pronunciation of every name and every unusual proper name in it. They were fantastic. And one of the things that I asked them before we started was, what's a good nonfiction book read by its own author that I can listen to for inspiration? Someone who's not a professional reader, right? But you get to hear them getting excited about their own ideas, which is why I wanted to read my own book. And Susan Orlean was the person who was recommended to me by one of the producers who reads several of her own books out loud. And the one I'm listening to right now that I, I'm listening to now in slow little bits because I'm down to the last few hours and I don't want it to end is Rin Tin Tin, her book about the famous movie dog, the German Shepherd, Rin Tin Tin, which I wanted to read back when it came out several years ago. And then it sort of like fell off the list somehow. And I'm so glad not just that I'm getting to read it, but that I'm listening to her speak it because just her sense of humor and her passion for the topic and, you know, all the incredible research paths she goes down because nobody can research like Susan Orlean. It's just it's so much fun to hear in her own voice. And it's a great Hollywood story. If, like me, you're somebody who is a complete sucker for a showbiz biopic, this is a showbiz biopic about a dog. Mm. And not just one dog who had an incredible story, the original dog Rin Tin Tin, who was found in France during a battle in World War One oh by his owner, his owner Lee Duncan, who becomes one of the big protagonists of the book, who then brings him back to the U.S. and trains him and eventually makes him this famous movie dog. But then after that, you know, there's his his son becomes a movie star and then other dogs are named Rin Tin Tin and at this point toward the end of the book she's just writing about the Rin Tin Tin phenomenon right and this sort of ranch full of German shepherds who could all be <laughs> Rin Tin Tins and what they meant to America in the 1950s and the television era anyway it's a huge history that not unlike my book sort of uses a show business figure to tell a bigger story about American history and it's really wonderful so Rin Tin Tin by Susan Orlean read by the author as an audiobook oh marvelous June what do you have Before I get to my recommendation, I apologize in advance for recommending something New York specific, uh, but it's something that is not temporary. It's a permanent thing. So if listeners live far away, if they ever come to New York, it should be available. So that's my excuse. So it is Turn Every Page Inside the Robert Caro Archive, which is uh, a relatively small exhibit at the New York Historical Society. Um, And it kind of, it, it brings elements from Robert Caro's writing process. Um, you know, people who've read Working, his book about how he writes, uh, will be familiar with many of the objects in the cases. But there's something really, I don't know, magical almost about seeing the actual things that a writer you have spent a lot of hours with used in the creation of that work. Um, for example, just to give one example, Uh, In The Power Brokers, you know, he talks, Carol wanted to have 
proof so that he could, you know, it wasn't just his impression that some of the things that Robert Moses did were racially discriminatory, because they all were. Uh, and so he he and his wife sat in a car in a particular place to, to kind of keep record of the race of the people who visited this, this place. And you see the tally and you see the literally hundreds of marks for white people and the very few marks for people of color. And I, I knew he'd done that, but just seeing it was really, it was extraordinary. So it's something about the power of objects. Um, pretty small exhibit, but really, really interesting. And I will just mention that um, I spoke with one of the curators for working, and that will be on an episode that will go out on the 19th of December. Uh, so, yeah, I really enjoyed it, though. Well, that's magnificent. All right. Well, I just want to issue a quick correction. My endorsement last week for the Esther sessions of the Beatles, it's actually the Escher, E-S-H-E-R sessions, which are the demos they made in George Harrison's uh, 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 townhouse for the uh, White Album. Um, check it out. It's really good, but you won't find it if you're looking for Esther Sessions. But uh, anyway, I want to um, return to the beginnings of an endorsement I sort of started last week, which is I now have finished the first novel by Rachel Cusk that I've read. I read Transit, which is the middle novel of her outlier trilogy. Um, it's fine to start with the middle one. There's something really committedly non-narrative about her way of structuring these novels. Um, and uh, I think to the extent that it speaks to us now, it's about a pervasive sense of unsettledness, which of course has only been heightened by, you know, Brexit, by Trump, by uh, COVID. Um, but, but how persistent this state of being in transit is, you know, maybe for all humans everywhere, but certainly for us now, um, Anyway, so so I, I just, for those of you inclined to take up Cusk, because probably many of you have either read her or, or had her recommended to you, I just, I can't, I can't second that enough. The, the consensus judgment about her is that she's a genius. I totally agree with it. These books are extraordinary. And then very quickly, you know, you know, we're living in odd times and, you know, in and out of the hammer and the dance, right? In and out, in and out of lockdown and um, people email me about the Hudson recommendation list and it's kind of, it's a little frozen in time and things are thawing and returning to normal sort of, but in other instances, not at all. I've been to one new place that I really love since uh, we've been able to return somewhat to indoor dining and that's uh, Cafe Mutton in Hudson is so incredibly good. It's more a breakfast brunch place, but they've done everything right. Everything is interesting. Uh, they, they understand food and hospitality really well. Very simple. Um, uh, check it out. June, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Dana, as always, what a pleasure, right? It was. It was indeed. Uh, you will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nick Brattel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. For June Thomas and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope to see you very soon. Mm-hmm.